Introduction of the Heidenmauer, or The Benedictines, A Legend of the Rhine, by James Fedimore Cooper. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Joel Kendrick. The Heidenmauer, by James Fedimore Cooper. Introduction. I shall crave for your forbearance a little. Maybe I will call upon you anon for some advantage to yourself. Measure for measure. Contrary to a long-established usage, a summer had been passed within the walls of a large town, but the moment of liberation arrived. The bird does not quit its cage with greater pleasure than that with which post-horses were commanded. We were four in a light-traveling calash, which strong Norman cattle transported merrily towards their native province. For a time we quitted Paris, the queen of modern cities, with its tumults and its order, its palaces and its lanes, its elegance and its filth, its restless inhabitants and its stationary politicians, its theories and its practices, its riches and its poverty, its gay and its sorrowful, its rentiers and its patriots, its young liberals and its old liberals, its three estates and its equality, its delicacy of speech and its strength of conduct, its government of the people, and its people of no government, its bayonets and its moral force, its science and its ignorance, its amusements and its revolutions, its resistance that goes backward, and its movement that stands still, its milliners, its philosophers, its opera dancers, its poets, its fiddlers, its bankers, and its cooks. Although so long enthralled with the barriers, it was not easy to quit Paris, entirely without regret. Paris, which every stranger censures and every stranger seeks, which moralists abhor and imitate, which causes the heads of the old to shake and the hearts of the young to beat. Paris, the center of so much that is excellent, and of so much that cannot be named. That night we laid our heads on rustic pillows, far from the French capital. The succeeding day we snuffed the air of the sea, passing through Artois and French Flanders. On the fifth morning we entered the new kingdom of Belgium, by the historical and respectable towns of Douai and Tournay and At. At every step we met the flag which flutters over the pavilion of the Tuileries and recognized the confident air and swinging gait of the French soldiers. They had just been employed in propping the crumbling throne of the House of Saxe. To us, they seemed as much at home as when they lounged on the Quai d'Orsay. There was still abundant evidence visible at Brussels of the fierce nature of the struggle that had expelled the Dutch. Forty-six shells were sticking in the side of a single building of no great size, while ninety-three grape-shot were buried in one of its pilasters. In our own rooms, too, there were fearful signs of war. Mirrors were in fragments, the walls broken by language, the woodwork of the beds were pierced by shot, and the furniture was marked by rude encounters. The trees of the park were mutilated in a thousand places, and one of the little cupids that we had left laughing above the principal gate three years before was now maimed and melancholy, whilst its companion had altogether taken flight on the wings of a cannonball. Though dwelling in the very center of so many hostile vestiges, we happily escaped the sight of human blood, for we understood from the obliging Swiss who presides over the hotel that his cellars, at all times in repute, were in more than usual request during the siege. From so much proof we were left to infer that the Belgians had made stout battle for their emancipation. 
one sign at least that they merited to be free. Our road lay by Levain, Thurlemont, Liege, Aix-les-Chapelles, and Juliet to the Rhine. The former of these towns had been the scene of a contest between the hostile armies the preceding week. As the Dutch had been accused of unusual excesses in their advance, we looked out for the signs. How many of these marks had been already obliterated, we could not well ascertain, but those that were still visible gave us reason to think that the invaders did not merit all the opprobrium that they had received. Each hour, as life advances, am I made to see how capricious and vulgar is the immortality conferred by a newspaper. It would be injustice to the ancient bishopric of Liege to pass its beautiful scenery without comment. The country possesses nearly every requisite for the milder and more rural sort of landscape. Isolated and innumerable farmhouses, herds in the fields, living hedges, a waving surface, and a verdure to rival the emerald. By happy accident, the road runs for miles on an elevated ridge, enabling the traveler to enjoy these beauties at his ease. At Aix-les-Chapelles, we bathed, visited the relics, saw the scene of so many coronations of emperors of more or less renown, sat in the chair of Charlemagne, and went our way. The Rhine was an old acquaintance. A few years earlier, I had stood upon the sands at Catwich and watched its periodical flow into the North Sea by means of sluices made in the short reign of the good King Louis. And the same summer I had bestrode it, a brawling brook on the icy side of St. Gothard. We had come now to look at its beauties in its most beautiful part, and to compare them, so far as native partiality might permit, with the well-established claims of our own Hudson. Quitting Cologne, its exquisite but incomplete cathedral, with the crane that has been poised on its unfinished towers five hundred years, its recollections of Rubens and its royal patroness. We traveled upstream so leisurely as to examine all that offered, and yet so fast as to avoid hazard of satiety. Here we met Prussian soldiers, preparing by mimic service for the most serious duties of their calling. Lancers were galloping in bodies across the open fields. Vedettes were posted, the cocked pistol in hand, at every haystack, while couriers rode under the spur from point to point, as if the great strife, which is so menacingly prepared, and which sooner or later must come, had actually commenced. As Europe is now a camp, these hackneyed sights scarce drew a look aside. We were in quest of the interest which nature, in her happier humors, bestows. There were ruined castles by scores, gray fortresses, abbeys, some deserted and others yet tenanted, villages and towns, the seven mountains, cliffs and vineyards. At every step we felt how intimate is the association between the poetry of nature and that of art, between the hillside with its falling turret and the moral feeling that lends them interest. Here was an island of no particular excellence, but the walls of a covenant of the Middle Ages crumbled on its surface. There was a naked rock, destitute of grandeur, and wanting in those tints which milder climates bestow, but a baronial hold tottered on its apex. Here Caesar led his legions to the stream, and there Napoleon threw his corps d'armée on the hostile bank. This monument was to Hoche, and from that terrace the great Adolphus directed his battalions. Time is wanting to mellow the view of our own historical sites. For the sympathy that can be accumulated only by the general consent of mankind has not yet clothed them with the indefinable colors of distance and convention. 
In the mood likely to be created by a flood of such recollections, we pursued our way along the southern margin of this great artery of Central Europe. We wondered at the vastness of the Rhinefalls, admired the rare jewel of the ruined church at Bacharach, and marveled at the giddy precipice on which a prince of Prussia even now dwells in the eagle-like grandeur and security of the olden time. On reaching Mayence the evening of the second day, we deliberately and, as we hoped, impartially compared what had just been seen with that which is so well and so affectionately remembered. I had been familiar with the Hudson from childhood, the great thoroughfare of all who journey from the interior of the state toward the sea. Necessity had early made me acquainted with its windings, its promontories, its islands, its cities, and its villages. Even its channels had been professionally examined. And time was when there did not stand an unknown seat on its banks, or a hamlet that had not been visited. Here, then, was the force of deep impressions to oppose to the influence of objects still visible. To me, it is quite apparent that the Rhine, while it frequently possesses more of any particular species of scenery within a given number of miles than the Hudson, has none of so great excellence. It wants the variety, the noble beauty, and the broad grandeur of the American stream— the latter, within the distance universally admitted to contain the finest parts of the Rhine, is both a large and a small river. It has its bays, its narrow passages among the meadows, its frowning gorges, and its reaches resembling Italian lakes, whereas the most that can be said of its European competitor is that all these wonderful peculiarities are feebly imitated. Ten degrees of lower latitude supply richer tints, brighter transitions of light and shadow, and more glorious changes of the atmosphere to embellish the beauty of our western clime. In islands, too, the advantage is with the Hudson, for while those of the Rhine are the most numerous, those of the former stream are bolder, better placed, and in every natural feature of more account. When the comparison between these celebrated rivers is extended to their artificial accessories, the result becomes more doubtful. The buildings of the older towns and villages of Europe seem grouped, especially for effect, as seen in the distant view, though security was, in truth, the cause. While the spacious, cleanly, and cheerful villages of America must commonly be entered to be appreciated. In the other hemisphere, the maze of roofs, the church towers, the irregular faces of wall, and frequently the castle rising to a pinnacle in the rear, give a town the appearance of some vast and antiquated pile devoted to a single object. Perhaps the burrows of the Rhine have less of this picturesque or landscape effect than the villages of France and Italy, for the Germans regard space more than their neighbors, but still they are less commonplace than their smiling and thriving little marts that crowd the borders of the Hudson. To this advantage must be added that which is derived from the countless ruins and a crowd of recollections. Here, the superiority of the artificial auxiliaries of the Rhine ceases, and those of her rival come into the ascendant. In modern abodes, in villas, and even in seats, those of princes alone excepted, the banks of the Hudson have scarcely an equal in any region. There are finer and nobler edifices on the Brenta, and in other favored spots, certainly, but I know no steam that has so many that please and attract the eye. As applied to moving objects, an important feature in this comparison, the Hudson has perhaps no rival in any river that can pretend to a picturesque character. In numbers, in variety of rig, in beauty of form, in swiftness and dexterity of handling, and in general grace and movement, this extraordinary passage ranks among the first in the world. 
The yards of tall ships swing among the rocks and forests of the highlands, while sloop, schooner, and bright canopied steamboat, yacht, periagua, and canoe are seen in countless numbers decking its waters. There is one more eloquent point of difference that should not be neglected. Drawings and engravings of the Rhine lend their usual advantages, softening and frequently rendering beautiful objects of no striking attractions when seen as they exist. While every similar attempt to represent the Hudson at once strikes the eye as unworthy of its original, nature is fruitful of fine effects in every region, and it is a mistake not to enjoy her gifts as we move through life on account of some fancied superiority in this or that quarter of the world. We left the Rhine, therefore, with regret, for, in its way, a lovelier stream can scarce be found. At Mayence, we crossed to the right bank of the river, and passing by the duchies of Nassau and Darmstadt, entered that of Baden at Heidelberg. We sat upon the tune, examined the castle, and strolled in the alleys of the remarkable garden. Thence we proceeded to Mannheim, turning our faces once more toward the French capital. The illness of one of the party compelled us to remain a few hours in the latter city, which presented little for reflection, unless it were that this, like one or two other towns we had lately seen, served to convince us that the symmetry and regularity which render large cities magnificent cause those that are small to appear mean. It was a bright autumnal day when we returned to the left bank of the Rhine on the way to Paris. The wishes of the invalid had taken the appearance of strength, and we hoped to penetrate the mountains which bound the Palatinate on its southwestern side and to reach the Kaiserslautern on the Great Napoleon Road before the hour of rest. The main object had been accomplished, and, as with all who have effected their purpose, the principal desire was to be at home. A few posts convinced us that repose was still necessary to the invalid. This conviction, unhappily as then believed, came too late, for we had already crossed the plain of the Palatinate, and were drawing near to the chain of mountains just mentioned, which are a branch of the Vosges, and are known in the country as the Hart. We made no calculations for such an event, and former experience had caused us to distrust the ends of the isolated portion of the kingdom of Bavaria. I was just bitterly regretting our precipitation when the church tower of the Durkheim peered above the vineyards, for, on getting nearer to the base of the hills, the land became slightly undulating and the vine abundant. As we approached, the village or borough promised little, but we had the word of the postillion that the post-house was an inn fit for a king, and as to the wine, he could give no higher eulogium than a flourish of the whip an eloquent expression of pleasure for a German of his class. We debated the question of proceeding, or of stopping in a good deal of doubt, to the moment when the carriage drew up before the sign of the ox. A substantial-looking burgher came forth to receive us. There was the pledge of good cheer and the ample development of his person, which was not badly typified by the sign and the hale, hearty character of his hospitality removed all suspicion of the hour of reckoning. If he who travels much is a gainer in knowledge of mankind, he is sure to be the loser in the charities that sweeten life. Constant intercourse with men who are in the habit of seeing strange faces, who only dispose of their services to those that are never likely to need them again, and of who, of necessity, are removed from most of the responsibilities and affinities of a more permanent intercourse, exhibits the selfishness of our nature in its least attractive form. Policy may suggest a specious blandishment of air to conceal the ordinary design on the pocket of the stranger. 
but it is in the nature of things that the design should exist. The passion of gain, like all other passions, increase with indulgence. And thus do we find those who dwell on beaten roads more rapacious than those in whom the desire is latent, for want of use. Our host of Durkheim offered a pledge, in his honest countenance, independent air, and frank manner, of his also being above the usual mercenary schemes of another portion of the craft who, dwelling in places of little resort, endeavor to take their revenge of fortune by showing that they look upon every post-carriage as an especial godsend. He had a garden, too, into which he invited us to enter, while the horses were changing in a way that showed he was simply desirous of being benevolent, and that he cared little whether we stayed an hour or a week. In short, his manner was of an artless, kind, natural, and winning character that strongly reminded us of home, and which at once established an agreeable confidence that is of an invaluable moral effect. Though too experienced blindly to confide in national characteristics, we liked, too, his appearance of German faith. And more than all were we pleased with the German neatness and comfort of which there was abundance, unalloyed by the swaggering pretension that neutralizes the same qualities among people more artificial. The house was not a beer-drinking, smoking caravanserai, like many hotels in that quarter of the world, but it had detached pavilions in the gardens, in which the weary traveler might, in sooth, take his rest. With such inducements before our eyes, we determined to remain, and we were not long in instructing the honest burgher to that effect. The decision was received with great civility, and, unlike the immortal Falstaff, I began to see the prospects of taking mine ease in mine inn, without having a pocket picked. The carriage was soon housed, and the baggage in the chambers. Notwithstanding, the people of the house spoke confidently, but with sufficient modesty of the state of the larder. It wanted several hours, agreeable to our habits, to the time of dinner, though we had enjoyed frequent opportunities of remarking that in Germany a meal is never unseasonable. Disregarding hints, which appeared more suggested by humanity than the love of gain, our usual hour for eating was named, and, by way of changing the subject, I asked, Did I not see some ruins on the adjoining mountains as we entered the village? We call Durkheim a city, Meinherr, rejoined our host of the ox, though none of the largest, the time has been when it was a capital. Here the worthy burgher munched his pipe and chuckled for he was a man that had heard of such places as London, and Paris, and Pekin, and Naples, and St. Petersburg, or, happily, the federal city itself. A capital? It was the abode of one of the smaller princes, I suppose. Of what family was your sovereign, pray? You are right, Meinherr. Durkheim, before the French Revolution, was a residence, for so the political capitals are called in Germany, and it belonged to the princes of Leinigen who had a palace on the other side of the city. The place may be about half as large as Hudson or Schenectady, which was burnt in the war. After the late wars, the sovereign was Mediatise, receiving an indemnity in estates on the other side of the Rhine. As this term of Mediatise has no direct synonym in English, it may be well to explain its signification. Germany, as well as most of Europe, was formally divided into a countless number of petty sovereignties, based on the principle of feudal power. As accident or talent or alliances or treachery advanced the interest of the stronger of these princes, 
their weaker neighbors began to disappear altogether or to take new or subordinate stations in the social scale. In this manner has France been gradually composed of its original but comparatively insignificant kingdom, buttressed as it is now by Brittany and Burgundy and Navarre and Dauphiny and Provence and Normandy with many other states, and in like manner has England been formed by the Heptarchy. The Confederate system of Germany has continued more or less of this feudal organization to our own times. The formation of the empires of Austria and Prussia has, however, swallowed up many of these principalities, and the changes produced by the policy of Napoleon gave the death blow, without distinction, to all in the immediate vicinity of the Rhine. Of the latter number were the princes of Leinigen, whose possessions were originally included in the French Republic, then in the Empire, and have since passed under the sway of the King of Bavaria, who, as the legitimate heir of the neighboring Duchy of Dupont, had a nucleus of sufficient magnitude in this portion of Germany to induce the Congress of Vienna to add to his dominions, their object being to erect a barrier against the future aggrandizement of France. As the dispossessed sovereigns are permitted to retain their conventional rank, supplying wives and husbands, at need, to the reigning branches of the different princely families, the term mediate dise has been aptly enough applied to their situation. The young prince was here no later than last week, continued our host of the ox. He lodged in that pavilion, where he passed several days. You know that he is a son of the Duchess of Kent and half-brother to the young princess who is likely one day to be the Queen of England. Has he estates here, or is he still in any way connected with your government? All they have given him is in money, or on the other side of the Rhine. He went to see the ruins of the old castle, for he had a natural curiosity to look at a place which his ancestors had built. It was the ruins of the castle of Linogen, then, that I saw on the mountain as we entered the town. No, mine heir, you saw the ruins of the Abbey of Limburg, those of the Hartenburg, for so the castle was called, lie farther back among the hills. What? A ruined abbey? And a ruined castle, too? Here is sufficient occupation for the rest of the day, an abbey and a castle. And the Heidenmauer and the Tuffelstein. How, a pagan's wall and a devil's stone? You are rich in curiosities. The host continued to smoke on philosophically. Have you a guide who can take me by the shortest way to these places? Any child could do that. But one who can speak French is desirable, for my German is far from being classical. The worthy innkeeper nodded his head. Here is one Christian Kinzel, he rejoined. After a moment of thought, a tailor, who has not much custom and who has lived a little in France. He may serve your term. I suggested that a tailor might find it healthful to stretch his knee joints. The host of the ox was amused with the conceit, and he fairly removed the pipe in order to laugh at his ease. His mirth was hearty, like that of a man without guile. The affair was soon arranged. A messenger was sent for Christian Kinzel, and taking my little male's traveling companion by the hand, I went leisurely ahead, expecting the appearance of the guide. But, as the reader will have much to do with the place about to be described, it may be desirable that he should possess an accurate knowledge of its locality. Durkheim lies in that part of Bavaria which is commonly called the Circle of the Rhine. The king of the country named may have less than half a million subjects in this detached part of his territories, which extends in one course from the river to Rhenish Prussia and in the other from Darmstadt to France. 
It requires a day of hard posting to traverse this province in any direction, from which it would appear that its surface is about equal to two-thirds of that of Connecticut. A line of mountains resembling the smaller spurs of the Alleghenies, and which are known by different local names, but which are a branch of the Vosges, passes nearly through the center of the district, in a north and south course. These mountains cease abruptly on their eastern side, leaving between them and the river a vast level of surface, of that description which is called flats, or bottomland in America. This plain, part of the ancient Palatinate, extends equally on the other side of the Rhine, terminating as abruptly on the eastern as on the western border. In an airline, the distance between Heidelberg and Durkheim, which lie opposite to each other on the two lateral extremities of the plain, may a little exceed 20 miles, the ride running equidistant from both. There is a plausible theory which says that the plain of the Palatinate was formerly a lake, receiving the waters of the Rhine, and of course discharging them by some inferior outlet, until time or a convulsion of the earth broke through the barrier of the mountains at Bingen, draining off the waters and leaving the fertile bottom described. Irregular sand hills were visible as we approached Durkheim, which may go to confirm this supposition, for the prevalence of northerly winds might easily have cast more of these light particles on the southwestern than on the opposite shore. By adding that the eastern face of the mountains, or that next to the plain, is sufficiently broken and irregular to be beautiful, while it is always distinctly marked and definite, enough has been said to enable us to proceed with intelligence. It would appear that one of the passes that has communicated, from time immemorial, between the Rhine and the country west of the Vosges, issues on the plain through the gorge near Durkheim. By following the windings of the valleys, the post road penetrates, by an easy ascent, to the highest ridge, and following the watercourses that run into the Moselle, descends nearly as gradually into the Duchy of Dupont on the other side of the chain. The possession of this pass, therefore, in the ages of lawlessness and violence, was, in itself, a title of distinction and power, since all who journeyed by it lay in person, and effects more or less at the mercy of the occupant. On quitting the town, my little companion and myself immediately entered the gorge. The pass itself was narrow, but a valley soon opened to the width of a mile, out of which issued two or three passages. Besides that by which we had entered, though only one of them preserved its character for any distance. The capacity of this valley or basin, as it must have been when the Palatinate was a lake, is much curtailed by an insulated mountain, whose base, covering a fourth of the area, stands in its very center, and which doubtless was an island when the valley was a secluded bay. The summit of this mountain, or island hill, is level, of an irregularly oval form, and contains six or eight acres of land. Here stands the ruins of Lindbergh, the immediate object of our visit. The ascent was exceedingly rapid, and of several hundred feet. Reddish freestone appeared everywhere through the scanty soil. The sun beat powerfully on the rocks, and I was beginning to weigh the advantages and disadvantages of proceeding, when the tailor approached with the zeal of newborn courage. Voici, Christian Kinzel, exclaimed, to whom novelty was always an incentive, and who in his young life had eagerly mounted Alp and Apennine, Jura and Calabrian Hill, Tower, Monument, and Dome, or whatever else served to raise him in the air. Alone's Grimpons! We scrambled up the hillside, and, winding among terraces on which the vine and vegetables were growing, soon reached the natural platform, 
There was a noble view from the summit, but it would be premature to describe it here. The whole surface of the hill furnished evidence of the former extent of the abbey, a wall having encircled the entire place. But the principal edifices had been built and still remain near the longitudinal center, on the very margin of the eastern precipice. Enough was standing to prove the ancient magnificence of the structure. Unlike most of the ruins which border the Rhine, the masonry was of workmanlike kind, the walls being not only massive, but composed of the sandstone just mentioned, neatly hewn, for immense strata of the material exist in all this region. I traced the chapel, still in tolerable preservation, the refectory, that never-failing solacer of monastic seclusion, several edifices apparently appropriated to the dormitories, and some vestiges of the cloisters. There is also a giddy tower of an ecclesiastical form that sufficiently serves to give a character to the ruins. It was closed to prevent idlers from incurring foolish risks by mounting the crazy steps. But its having formerly been appropriated to the consecrated bells was not at all doubtful. There is also a noble arch near with several of its disjointed stones menacing the head of him who ventures beneath. Turning from the ruin, I cast a look at the surrounding valley. Nothing could have been softer or more lovely than the near view. That sort of necessity which induces us to cherish any stinted gift had led the inhabitants to turn every foot of the bottom land to the best account. No Swiss Alp could have been more closely shaved than the meadows at my feet, and a good deal had been made of two or three rivulets that meandered among them. The dam of a rustic mill threw back the water into a miniature lake, and some zealous admirer of Neptune had established a beer house on its banks, which was dignified with the sign of the anchor. But the principal object in the interior or upland view was the ruins of a castle that occupied a natural terrace, or rather the projection of a rock against the side of one of the nearest mountains. The road passed immediately beneath its walls, a short arrow flight from the battlements, the position having evidently been chosen as the one best adapted to command the ordinary route of the traveler. I wanted no explanation from the guide to know that this was the castle of Hartenburg. It was still more massive than the remains of the abbey, built of the same material, and seemingly in different centuries, for while one part was irregular and rude, like most of the structures of the Middle Ages, there were salient towers filled with embrasures for the use of artillery. One of their guns, well elevated, might possibly have thrown its shot on the platform of the Abbey Hill, but with little danger even to the ruined walls. After studying the different objects in this novel and charming scene for an hour, I demanded of the guide some account of the pagan's wall and of the devil's stone. Both were on the mountain that lay on the other side of the ambitious little lake, a long musket shot from the Abbey. It was even possible to see a portion of the former from our present stand, and the confused account of the tailor only excited a desire to see more. We had not come on this excursion without a fit supply of road books and maps. One of the former was accidentally in my pocket, though so little had we expected anything extraordinary on this unfrequented road that as yet it had not been opened. On consulting its pages now, I was agreeably disappointed in finding that Durkheim and its antiquities had not been thought unworthy of the traveler's especial attention. The pagan's wall was there, stated to be the spot in which Attila passed the winter before crossing the Rhine, in his celebrated inroad against the capital of the civilized world. In short, it was believed to be the remains of a Roman camp. 
one of those advanced works of the empire by which the barbarians were held in check, and of which the Hun had casually and prudently availed himself in his progress south. The Devil's Stone was described as a natural rock in the vicinity of the encampment on which the pagans had offered sacrifices. Of course, the liberated limbs of the guide were put in requisition to conduct us to a spot that contained curiosities so worthy of even his exertions. As we descended the mountain of Limburg, Christian Kinzel lighted the way by relating the opinions of the country concerning the places we had seen and were about to see. It would appear by this legend that when the pious monks were planning their monastery, a compact was made with the devil to quarry the stones necessary for so extensive a work and to transport them up the steep acclivity. The inducement held forth to the evil spirit for undertaking a work of this nature was the pretense of erecting a tavern in which, doubtless, undue quantities of Rhenish wine were to be quaffed, cheating human reason, and leaving the undefended soul more exposed to the usual assaults of temptation. It would seem, by the legends of the Rhine, that the monks often succeeded in outwitting the arch-foe in this sort of compact though perhaps never with more signal success than in the bargain in question. Completely deceived by the artifices of the men of God, the father of sin lent himself to the project with so much zeal that the abbey and its appendages were completed in a time incredibly short, a circumstance that his employers took good care to turn to account, after their own fashion, by ascribing it to a miracle of pure emanation. By all accounts, the deception was so well managed that notwithstanding his proverbial cunning, the devil never knew the true destination of the edifice until the abbey bell actually rang for prayers. Then, indeed, his indignation knew no bounds, and he proceeded forthwith to the rock in question, with the fell intent of bringing it into the air above the chapel, and, by its fall, of emulating the monks and their altar together to his vengeance. But the stone was too firmly rooted to be displaced even by the devil, and he was finally compelled by the prayers of the devotees, who were now, after their own fashion of fighting, fairly in the field, to abandon this portion of the country in shame and disgrace. The curious are shown certain marks on the rock, which go to prove the violent efforts of Satan. On this occasion, and among others, the prince of his form, left by seating himself on the stone, fatigued by useless exertions. The more ingenious even trace, in a sort of groove, evidence of the position of his tail. We were at the foot of the second mountain when Christian Kinzel ended this explanation. And such is your Durkheim tradition concerning the devil's stone, I remarked, measuring the ascent with the sight. Such is what is said in the country, mine herr, returned the tailor. But there are people hereabouts who do not believe it. My little traveling companion laughed, and his eyes danced with expectation. Allons, Grimpons, he cried again. Allons, voisin, tu Wolstein. In a suitable time, we were in the camp. It lay on an advanced spur of the mountain, a sort of salient bastion made by nature, and was completely protected on every side but that at which it was joined to the mass, by declivities so steep as to be even descended with some pain. There was the ruin of a circular wall, half a league in extent, the stones lying in a confused pile around the whole exterior, and many vestiges of foundations and intersecting walls within. The whole area was covered with a young growth of dark and melancholy cedars. 
On the face exposed to the adjoining mountain, there had evidently been the additional protection of the ditch. The Tufelstein was a thousand feet from the camp. It is a weather-worn rock that shows its bare head from a high point in the more advanced ranges of the hills. I took a seat on its most elevated pinnacle, and for a moment the pain of the ascent was forgotten. The plain of the Plotnet, far as the eye could reach, lay in the view. Here and there the Rhine and the Necker glittered like sheets of silver among the verdure of the fields, and tower of city and of town, of Mannheim, spires and verms, of nameless villages and of German residences, were as plenty as tombs upon the Appian Way. A dozen gray ruins clung against the sides of the mountains of Baden and Darmstadt, while the castle of Heidelberg was visible in its romantic glen, somber, courtly, and magnificent. The landscape was German, and in its artificial parts, slightly Gothic. It wanted the warm color, the capricious outlines, and seductive beauty of Italy, and the grandeur of the Swiss valleys and glaciers. But it was the perfection of fertility and industry embellished by a crowd of useful objects. It was easy for one thus placed to fancy himself surrounded by so many eloquent memorials of the progress of civilization, of the infirmities and constitution, of the growth and ambition of the human mind. The rock recalled the age of furious superstition and debased ignorance, the time when the country lay in forest, over which the hunter ranged at will, contending with the beast for the mastery of his savage domain. Still, the noble creature bore the image of God, and occasionally some mastermind pierced the shades, catching glimpses of that eternal truth which pervades nature. Then followed the Roman, with his gods of plausible attributes, his ingenious and specious philosophy, his accumulated and borrowed art, his concerted and overwhelming action, his love of magnificence, so grand in its effects, but so sordid and unjust in its means. And last, the most impressive of all, that beacon-like ambition which wrecked his hopes on the sea of its vastness, with the evidence of the falsity of his system as furnished in his fall. The memorial before me showed the means by which he gained and lost his power. The barbarian had been taught in the bitter school of experience to regain his rights, and in the excitement of the moment it was not difficult to imagine the Huns pouring into the camp and calculating their changes of success by the vestiges that they found of the ingenuity and resources of their foes. The confusion of misty images that succeeded was an apt emblem of the next age. Out of this obscurity, after the long and glorious reign of Charlemagne, arose the baronial castle with feudal violence and its progeny of wrongs. Then came the abbey, an excrescence of that mild and suffering religion which had appeared on earth like a ray of the sun eclipsing the factitious brilliancy of a scene from which natural light had been excluded for a substitute of a meretricious and deceptive quality. Here arose the long and selfish strife between the antagonist principles that has not yet ceased. The struggle was between the power of knowledge and that of physical force. The former, neither pure nor perfect, descended to subterfuge and deceit, while the latter vacillated between the dread of unknown causes and the love of domination. Monk and Baron came in collision this secretly distrusting the faith he professed, and that trembling at the consequences of the blow which his own sword had given, the fruits of too much knowledge in one. 
and of too little in the other, while both were the prey of those incessant and unwearied enemies of the race, the greedy passions. A laugh from the child drew my attention to the foot of the rock. He and Christian Kinzel had just settled, to their mutual satisfaction, the precise position that had been occupied by the devil's tail. A more suitable emblem of his country than that boy could not have been found on the whole of its wide surface. A secondary to the predominant English or Saxon stock, the blood of France, Sweden, and Holland ran in nearly equal currents in his veins. He had not far to seek to find among his ancestors the peaceful companion of Penn, the Huguenot, the Cavalier, the Presbyterian, the follower of Luther and of Calvin. Chance had even deepened the resemblance, for, a wanderer from infancy, he now blended languages and merry comments on his recent discovery. The train of his thought that his appearance suggested was natural. It embraced the long and mysterious concealment of so vast a portion of the earth as America. From the acquaintance of civilized man, its discovery and settlement, the manner in which violence and persecution, civil wars, oppression, and injustice had thrown men of all nations upon its shores, the effects of this collision of customs and opinions, unenthralled by habits and laws of selfish origin, the religious and civil liberty that followed, the novel but irrefutable principle on which its government was based, the silent working of its example in the two hemispheres, one of which had already imitated the institutions that the other was struggling to approach, and all the immense results that were dependent on this inscrutable and grand movement of providence. I know not indeed, but my thoughts might have approached the sublime had not Christian Kinzel interrupted them by pointing out the spot where the devil had kicked the stone in his anger. Descending from the perch, we took the path to Durkheim. As we came down the mountain, the tailor had many philosophical remarks to make that were chiefly elicited by the forlorn condition of one who had much toil and little food. In his view of things, labor was too cheap and wine and potatoes were too dear. To what depth he might have pushed reflections bottomed on principles so natural, it is impossible to say, had not the boy started some doubts concerning the reputed length of the devil's tail. He had visited the Jardin de Plantes in Paris, seen the kangaroos in the zoological garden in London, and was familiar with the inhabitants of a variety of caravans encountered at Rome, Naples, Dresden, and other capitals. With the bears of Bern, he had actually been on the familiar terms of a friendly visiting acquaintance. Having also some vague ideas of the analogies of things, he could not recall any beast so amply provided with such an elongation of the dorsal bone as was to be inferred from Christian Kinzel's gutter in the Tufelstein. During the discussion of this knotty point, we reached the inn. The host of the ox had deceived us in nothing. The viands were excellent and abundant to prodigality. The bottle of old Durkheimer might well have passed for Johannesburger, or for still more delicious liquor, Steinberger, at London or New York, and the simple and sincere civility with which everything was served gave a zest to all. It would have been selfish to recruit nature without thought of the tailor, and after so many hours of violent exercise in the keen air of the mountains. He too had his cup and his viands, and when both were invigorated by these natural means, we held a conference, to which the worthy postmaster was admitted. The following pages are the offspring of this convocation held in the parlor of the ox. 
Should any musty German antiquary discover some immaterial anachronism, a name misplaced in the order of events, or a monk calling prematurely from purgatory, he is invited to wreck his just indignation on Christian Kinzel, whose body and soul may St. Benedict of Limburg protect forevermore against all critics. End of introduction. Read by Joel Kendrick.